Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress, if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. The theologian Anders Nygren once wrote, It is only when man is free from the law that he can really bear fruit for God. So I want to welcome you back this morning to our series on Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. And we are now in the 39th part of this sermon series, and we are beginning, obviously, uh, chapter number 7. And we're nearing, really, the halfway point of Paul's letter uh, to the church at Rome. And to this point... If you've been here for a while, you understand we've covered a lot of ground because there's a lot of theology in this letter. In fact, Romans is the clearest exposition of the gospel in the Bible. I mean, we know the gospel as Christians as well as we do because Paul has written what he wrote here, right? The New Testament is all about the gospel for sure, but Paul gives us the clearest exposition of the gospel, And so with that, we have covered many, many important theological subjects. And I mention this because if you have missed any part of this series, or maybe you have joined us after we started, that we've already began before you got here, um, you would actually benefit to go back and listen to the parts of the sermon series that you have missed to this point. And you can do that either by going to our church's YouTube page. There's videos, uh, video sermons up there. Or you can listen to the audio on SoundCloud or, or the website. And all the messages have been uploaded so you can listen to the parts you've missed and, uh, and you can even re-listen to the parts in the, of the messages you want to get clearer on. Or you can even share them with your friends and family so they can hear the gospel presented and come to know Christ and know Him better. Now with that, if you have been here, you will notice that there is a, a progression to Paul's letter uh, as he unpacks the gospel. The letter began with, Paul's declaration that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the very power of God for salvation to those who believe. And then he explains then what the gospel is. It is the bad news that all of mankind is covered in sin and under the wrath of God. But the good news that God 
has made a way for mankind to be saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then Paul, after that, explains the benefits of the gospel, which include peace with God, because where we were once his enemies, we now have peace with him. We have access to the grace of God, and we have continual proof of the love of God. And then after that, he explains to us how the gospel actually works, that we were born in Adam sharing his curse and sin, but by faith, we are united in a very real way to Christ, sharing in his death to sin and his new life to God. And because of that, because Christ is our federal head, by faith our sins are completely atoned for, past, present, and future, and his righteousness is credited to us as if we are righteous ourselves. Matt mentioned that, that in Christ we are the righteousness of God. And then after that, Paul addresses some of the objections that get raised against the gospel because for some reason, many people believe that being saved by grace somehow means that we now have a license to live in sin. But Paul destroys that notion by pointing out the fact that those who have been saved have been supernaturally changed and transformed. And, and, and as such, they have died to sin, have been set free from the power and the mastery of sin. And because of their union with Christ, those who trust in Jesus will by nature live for God's glory and by His grace will grow in obedience. Now, along that same vein, Romans chapter 7 and into chapter 8, Paul is going to continue to address this issue of the law. Because if there is an issue that creates confusion and frustration in the world around us, for so many people, it is the law of God, right? That's why there is so much debate. That's why there is so much argument about it. That's why there's so many different perspectives. It's because most people do not actually understand from a biblical perspective what the law of God is or what the law of God was for. Don't believe me? Then ask 10 of your Christian friends, what is the law of God and what the law of God is for? And I'm going to promise you, you will get a wide divergence of opinions, much of which has nothing to do with what the Bible has to say. Because most people just really don't understand it because we just haven't taught it. And this isn't anything new, by the way. This is not new. This was an issue that the early church faced from the very beginning. That's why Paul has to address this objection and these other objections to the gospel that are related to the law because there is confusion about it. That's why Paul has to address it so many times. In fact, if you survey the letter to the Romans, Paul mentions the word law 51 times. 51 times. And guess what? 27 of those times are going to be in this section from Romans 7, 1 to 8, 4. 27 times. And the reason for that is because there was and still is much understanding, misunderstanding regarding the law of God and the relationship the law has to believers. And so Paul in this next section of this text is going to explain how the law relates to the world and those who are saved by the power of the gospel. Now, before we jump in here, let's take some time and let's just actually get clear and talk about what the law is. I know that it may seem self-explanatory, but, but understand it's not, because there's a great deal of confusion about this subject. 
So we're just going to explain what it is, and we're going to talk about the, how the law affects us and the world. And if we're going to do that, we need to lay this foundation. Otherwise, a lot of what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks is going to be really abstract and hard to relate to. And so the first thing we need to get clear about is what the law of God that Paul is talking about is, right? What is the law of God? Well, the law of God exists in two dimensions. Two dimensions. First, theologically, the theological dimension, what is the law of God? It is the revelation of God's holy character, right? It reveals who God is in his nature, and because of that, it reveals God's standard for righteousness or moral perfection. God is morally perfect. The Bible says that he is light. In him, there is no darkness. He is perfect. He is completely just. He is completely and totally righteous. And he requires moral perfection out of those who would be in right relationship with him. That's the theological dimension of the law. The second dimension is how the law is revealed in Scripture. There is the scriptural dimension. In fact, much of the Old Testament is called the law. Specifically, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? they are called the Pentateuch and were, were referred to as the law. In fact, the Old Testament was referred to by, by um, first, the first century Jews as the law, the prophets, and the writings, right? And so a big portion of the Old Testament then is called the law. And, and it is the written, codified law handed down by God to Moses, to the nation of Israel. And all of this law was binding on all Jews before Christ came. This whole written law was binding on every Jew before Christ came. And there were people in the first century and even today who would say that the entire law still is binding on those who follow God now. Uh, the most visible of this, I think, is the now the Torah observant movement and other legalistic religions. But the problem is the law of God, right? The, 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 is, the problem is the written law of God for the nation of Israel actually exists in three distinct categories. There are three different categories of Old Testament law. And, in, and until you come to terms with that, until you understand these categories, there will be lots of confusion about how this affects the world and how the law affects Christian life. In fact, one very clear example of this confusion is the issue today of homosexuality. Christians rightly define homosexuality like, like all sexual immorality as a sinful act and a violation of God's moral law, right? It is sin, and as such, it ought to be repented of. But there are people who then don't understand the distinctions will say, and they will rightly say, well, wait a minute, the Old Testament says that, that people were forbidden to eat shellfish and pork, and people were, were forbidden to, to wear clothes of different types of, of fabrics. And they would say, right, you know, that, that, there, that, that you're playing favorites here. And it is true, right? It does say that. And then these people would say, then you Christians then are hypocrites 
You're applying two different standards. You say, this is the law over here, and you hold it in high regard, but over here you deny this law over there. Well, what this is is simply a category error. Because the written law was written in three basic categories for three distinct purposes. And I want you to hear me on this. This is so important for us as Christians. If we don't get this right, we will continually bump our heads against this. The, the written law was broken in three distinct categories for three purposes, meaning each category of the law had a different reason for it to exist. And if we don't understand that, we're going to struggle to make heads or tails of the endless debates about the law. And so let's get clear about these categories. The categories, and I'm just going to give them to you all up front, of the law are civil law, ceremonial law, and then moral law. That's the three categories that the Old Testament law breaks down into. Civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. I'm going to just briefly touch on these categories so that we understand where I'm coming from. The civil law is the part of the written law that regulated how the Israelites were to live and behave as a nation, as a country. These laws were given to, to Israel as a nation, and they regulated how, Israel, how the Israelite citizens of that nation were to live and to act towards one another and how they acted towards other nations. These are laws that are regarding things like debt and property and warfare and the treatment of servants and the division of, of property. These were all example of the civil laws that regulated life in the nation of Israel. And these laws were binding on the citizens of Israel as a nation nationally, which means these laws were not made for or binding to any other nation. Let's be clear about that. They were not given in for any other people group, not then and not now. These laws were for a specific people group at a specific time. And in more than that, in AD 70, when Jerusalem was conquered and the nation of Israel was completely destroyed, this civil law was done away with. The civil law came to an end. And as such, the civil laws in the Old Testament are binding to no one, especially to Christians. Right? Now, that being said, we need to be really clear. American law and Western law is based largely on the principles of the Old Testament law. Right? Our jurisprudence, if you look at our, the way that our laws are structured, they're rooted in principles of the Old Testament civil law. But the Old Testament civil law, written the way that it is, is not binding on, on Christians with respect, with respect to relationship to God. We are not bound to that. The second category is ceremonial laws, or part of the, the written law that regulates how Jews were to live and worship God. These were laws that were designed to set them apart from the rest of the world. These laws included various festivals like Passover. These are laws like the dietary laws and what they ate. These were laws that regulated sacrifices and, and atonement. These were the laws that regulated priestly duties. And these even were the Sabbath laws were ceremonial as a sign of something greater. And these laws were binding on all Jews everywhere and, then, and, and they regulated how the Jews worshipped until the coming of Christ. After Christ came, these laws were set aside because all of the ceremonial laws had been fulfilled in Christ. All of these laws pointed to their great fulfillment 
which is Jesus Christ and his life and ministry. You see, we have no need now for animal sacrifices because Christ is our once and for all sacrifice. We have no need for a priest to go and and make atonement because Christ, our high priest, has already made atonement for us, right? We don't have to travel on a pilgrimage to some place to a temple because you are the temple of God, right? We are not required to observe the Sabbath and stay home and and refrain from certain activities and be bound by penalty of death because Christ himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we are to rest in him because he is our Sabbath rest. Now, believe me, I believe in resting, and I think that taking a day off is a biblical principle we should live by, but it's not a binding requirement of the law for us to have fellowship with God. These laws were fulfilled in Christ. And so none of these ceremonial laws are binding on us. First of all, because we're not Jewish. Second of all, these laws were done away with, and they were fulfilled in Christ. Well, what do we have left after the civil and ceremonial laws? We have the moral law. This is the crux of the matter. The moral law is the part of the law that reflects the character of God and God's requirement for perfect righteousness that we must attain if we are to be in the presence of God. The law that reflects God's character was never given to just one group of people for a certain time. This law is for all people at all time. The moral law is for everyone, everywhere. And it's the moral law is a standard for God's righteousness. And this moral law is best summarized, as Jesus said in the commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, Jesus said that those two are the summary of the entire law. And the scripture makes it clear that there is a way that, that we are to live before God and with man that is right and that is just. And this moral law regulates how we treat and relate to God and how we treat and relate to our fellow man. And as such, this law prohibits things like idolatry or having other gods before God. This this moral law um, criminalizes all forms of sexual sin. It prohibits all sexual sin. All sexual sins of violation of the moral law, right? And the law doesn't change. The moral law also prohibits things like stealing, murdering, lying, cheating, right? And coveting things that don't belong to us, right? The law, we also will see in Exodus, was summarized in nine of the Ten Commandments. When you read the Ten Commandments, you will see a summary of the moral law and how it regulates our relationship with God and other people. But the moral law is not just strictly limited to those specific actions. The moral demands of the law demands that we love God supremely in our actions and our attitudes. And we are to love everyone else in the world around us in our actions and attitudes as we love ourselves. The law demands that we are to be fair and to be just in all our ways and dealings with other people. And this law is binding on everyone at all times. And this law never goes away. Why? (laughs) Because it's never okay to murder someone. It's never okay to bear false witness. It's never okay to worship another god. 
The law is always binding on everyone because this law is, by, is the standard by which God measures righteousness because it is a reflection of who he is. And because of this law, we need the gospel, right? Because we, why? We can't fulfill it on our own. We can't do it no matter how hard we try. We, we, even though we don't murder people or covet our neighbor's wife, and maybe we don't worship idols and do the things that are prescribed in the Ten Commandments, we will never fully be able to love and worship God and honor Him the way that He demands. Not on our own. We can't do it. And by the same token, we could never love other people the way that we're called to love them. Just think about your interactions with people in the last 48 hours. Would you say that you were loving them the way the Bible calls you to love them? We are never going to treat everyone around us the way the law demands. We will never live up to moral perfection. We can't do it. In fact, Jesus expanded the scope of the law, if you remember. Matthew chapter 5, he said, If you have heard it said that of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Well, guess what? We're all liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus said it's not enough that you don't commit the murder physically, but you can't even have bitterness and hatred in your heart. And then verse 27, he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustful with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When Jesus explained the full scope of the law, right, we all became murderers and adulterers at heart. We cannot live up to this law. That is why we need the gospel. Because we're not able to keep the law. It is impossible for us to attain this moral perfection on our own. We need someone to do it for us. And that's exactly what Christ did. Christ is the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. He is the one who satisfied the demands of the covenant of works. Christ is the one who keeps the whole law for us. And he is the one who has atoned for our sins by his own blood. So by faith, his perfect righteousness then can be credited to us. Right? As if we ourselves fulfilled the law completely. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and His finished work on our behalf. By faith, we are declared righteous and perfect according to law because of what Christ has done, not because of what we can do. And so notice the law doesn't go away. The law hasn't been set aside. The moral law doesn't become irrelevant. It is still the measure of God's character. It is still the standard of righteousness that is required. That is why you must come to faith in Christ. That is why the call by Jesus is to repent and believe the gospel. Because without Christ, you will be judged by these standards. And so the law doesn't go away. It is still binding on everyone. And it's, and it's just those in Christ who were depending not on their own ability to keep the law. They're depending on Jesus by faith and his keeping of the law. Now, with that, how are we to be, how do we relate to the law? Well, as we talked about before, the subject of God's law and how we are to relate to it typically breaks down into two extreme points of view. For some reason, it always ends up into two extremes. 
You have those on one extreme who would say that you must obey the law to be in relationship with God, which are the legalists. And then you have those who think that the law is irrelevant to the Christian, right? And you can basically live however you want to. Those are called the antinomians. And, and, and I know we touched on this before, but let's just take a moment to just unpack this a little bit more. Because these are two points of view that are really easy to fall into. Beginning with the legalists. Legalists see that obedience to the law somehow is mandatory for salvation or at least for fellowship ongoing with God. But the thing that we need to understand is that legalists, right, they're not all the same. It's, I mean, they're different kind of shades of legalism. You have the strict legalist who would say that you must keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. It's very common in certain groups nowadays that, yes, you have to have grace, but you better be keeping the commandments. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. They deny salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that you must keep the law. In fact, I had a, a conversation with someone who just completely ignores all the other scriptures in the New Testament, but he says, James says, faith without works is dead, taking it out of context, right? Strict legalists. But then you have the legalists that are a bit harder to spot. Those who would say that you're saved by grace through faith, but then somehow they begin to incorporate the ceremonial law in what, how they believe you need to be sanctified. That you're not really that mature of a Christian if you're not starting to embrace some of the ceremonial law, right? Like, you're not really like a, a varsity Christian if you're not, you know, observing the festivals or if you're not embracing Jewish culture, then you're really, you're not really growing in your faith, right? And then you have the legalists, I think that we're all very familiar with, that add it to the law. These are the Christians who, who because of their experience or because of their culture or because of their personal feelings, they begin to create additional rules for what true Christians do and what they look like. And we've experienced all kinds of these legalists, right? right we've all met the Christian who thinks that, a, that your Christianity is rooted in how long your hair is, right? Right? We've met those Christians who, who think that your Christianity is reflected in the way that you dress. If you don't have a suit and tie on, then maybe you're not really saved. We've, we've heard people say, right, if you have a tattoo, then you're not a Christian, right? Or, or you're not a Christian if you listen to that kind of music, and you're not a Christian if you watch those kinds of movies, and, and you're not a Christian if your wife wears pants, you know what I mean? I, and and I, that might sound silly, but I've heard those exact words. Just, surf, just, just search YouTube, and you will, you will hear all kinds of things. These are legalists that take personal freedoms and personal convictions and make them binding laws for everyone else. But this kind of legalism and all legalism is anti-gospel because you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But on the other hand, we have those who say that God's law is irrelevant for the Christian and, and somehow we can live however we want to, even if it violates God's law. That's called antinomianism. Now, that word antinomianism is a Latin word that literally means no law, right? Nomos or nomon, which is the word that Paul used, it means law, and anti means the opposite of that, right? It's no law. And they are, there are a number of different types of antinomians. In fact, they're what's called the dualistic antinomian. And I don't want to bore you with all the details, but I think these are important. And it's the view that basically that salvation is for your soul only 
and your bodily behavior is irrelevant to God's interest and your soul's health. As long as your soul is right, then you, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Right? Then there's the spirit-centered antinomian. They put so much emphasis on the Holy Spirit's inward prompting as to deny any need at all to be taught the law of God and use that as a way to live. They, they see freedom from the law as a way of salvation, and, it, it, and, and they assume that it brings with it a freedom from even having to really know what the law of God is. Then you have Christ-centered antinomianism, right? People who, who see, you know, they, 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 they focus on the fact that God sees no sin in believers, which is true because of their in Christ, right? And, and, and because Christ kept the law for us, therefore then, it doesn't matter what we do because Christ did it all. We don't have to worry about the law anymore as long as we just keep believing. And then you have the situational antinomian. This is really more the cultural one. They say that what matters is motive and intention. As long as what you do is done with the intention of love, that's all that God requires, right? And the Ten Commandments and the other ethical parts of Scripture are just rules of thumb to guide you, right? And you can actually disregard them as long as what you're doing is, is rooted in love because love is all that matters. But the fact is all antinomianism right, is anti-gospel. Antinomianism diminishes the character of God by denying and disregarding God's law. And so both extremes are unbiblical and anti-gospel, which means there must be a balance of being saved, between being saved by grace through faith and the very real expectation that those who come to faith in Christ will love the law and grow in obedience toward the law. And we talked about that for the last several weeks, and Paul has made it clear. Uh, but, but in this section, in the, in the coming weeks, Paul is going to directly deal with both legalism and antinomianism. In fact, today's primary about legalism. So turn with me actually to Romans chapter 7. Notice that Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Notice Paul says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to his Jewish audience. Why? Because they know the law. Because the law was their life. For the Jew, the law was what made them who they were. It's what made them different from the world. It was something that was integrated in them from the ver from very birth. They memorized the law from childhood. They lived for the law. It was a complete part of their identity. And because of that, letting go of the requirements to obey the law was a difficult transition for many of them, which means they tended to fall back into a legalistic mindset. They would tend to believe that obedience to the law of God was still required. In fact, if you read much of the New Testament, you'll find much of it was dealt, was, was written to deal with this legalism. In fact, if you read Galatians, that's exactly the reason why Paul wrote what he wrote. And so Paul is addressing this legalism and he's making it clear that those who are in Christ have been set free from this legalism. But notice, he says the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul is leveraging a truth that the Jews knew very well, 
And that's the requirements of the law and at death. Why? <laughs> because you're dead. The law requiring you to behave a certain way is meaningless to those who were dead. The law is immaterial at that point. And that's what Paul says. The law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Well, who does Paul say it is that have died? Those who are in Christ. Remember, Paul said in Romans chapter 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in, in, to Jesus, in Christ Jesus have, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We have been united with him in a death like his. Those who are in Christ are united in his death. We have died with him. And because of that, we are free. We are free from compulsory obedience to the law. But remember, what's the law for? The law delineates what God requires for perfect righteousness and to have a relationship with Him. It is a standard by which mankind is going to be judged. And those who are in Christ have died with Christ and are raised a new life and by faith in Christ are declared what? Righteous under the law, as if we kept the law. But guess what? Who didn't die to the law? The rest of mankind. Everyone else in the world. Every other person who has not come to faith in Christ has not died to the law. The rest of, of humanity, of mankind, is still bound to the law. They are bound to the standard of God's righteousness. A standard, hear me, a standard that they will be judged by. I know that's not language that the world wants to hear, but it is the truth. A standard that they will be judged by, and what's worse, they all have failed to attain, just like us. The law is binding in all of humanity. No one escapes the requirements of the law on their own. Every person you meet who is not in Christ is going to be held accountable to this moral law. Every person you know who is not in Christ is bound to the law. God is going to use this law, His standard of righteousness, to measure them and judge them. And this is important for us because we live in a world and a culture that does not want to upset people with the truth. We live at a time when we value getting along with people so much we would rather not love them enough to be honest with them. And the truth is, if those around you are not in Christ, they are bound to the law and the law will be used to measure them, judge them, condemn, condemn them, and then sentence them to hell. That is an immutable, unchangeable truth. That is a truth that is more certain than the fact that tomorrow morning the sun is going to rise over there. If they're not in Christ, they are bound to the law and are subject to God's justice. And it is not loving to let people think that they're okay with God and His law. All people who are not in Christ are bound to the law and under God's judgment and wrath. And I know this isn't popular in the world, and it's certainly not popular in the church. In fact, well-meaning Christians oftentimes will try to soften this truth by saying things in an attempt to take the sting out of the fact that everyone is under the law. In fact, I recently heard a preacher, a preacher say, well, you know, people don't go to hell because of sin. 
they go to hell because of unbelief. That sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? It sounds so simple. Well, ugh, it's just a matter of just believing. But, but hear me. We need to believe, sure, but, but, but that's not the truth. People go to hell because they sin against the holy, righteous, and just God. They sin against God's law. They willfully violate God's standard for righteousness. They are bound to the moral code. And, and, and sinners are not punished simply because they're just, they don't believe in Christ. They are punished because of their sin. Because the law is what condemns them. Now, in verse 2, Paul changes the analogy a little bit. And because of that, it can be easy to get lost in the weeds trying to untangle and overthink the details here. But there is something to see. Paul writes, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she is called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, Paul's analogies here might seem a bit strange to us, but his point still remains. Mankind is bound to the law, and there's not any escape to that. Just like a married woman in that culture was bound to her husband, sinners are bound to the law. Now, in our culture, this doesn't carry as much weight for us because men and women both can get divorced at any time for any reason. It doesn't matter. Marriage is not seen by much of our culture as a lifetime commitment the way that it was before. But in that culture, marriage was a sacred institution and was binding. And women, especially in that culture, were the ones who were not allowed for any reason to break the marriage. Women were just simply not allowed to break the covenant of marriage in that culture. The only way for a woman to be free from her husband no matter what the circumstances were, was for him to die. A wife was bound to her husband even if she hated him, even if she denied him, even if she ran from him, even if she railed against him, even, even if she did whatever she could do to get away, she was still bound to him. It was an immutable truth. A woman in that culture could hate her husband and refuse to acknowledge him, but it didn't change the fact that she was still legally bound to him. And in the same way, Mankind is bound to the law of God. Even when mankind tries to deny that he is bound to the law by pretending it's not real, even when he adopts different philosophies and ways of thinking and different worldviews and rejects the law, even if he adopts different religions and, and spiritual practices, even if he claims to be free because he's just simply not religious, even if he claims not to believe in God, who is the author of law, he is still much to his chagrin, still bound to the law. He can run, he can hide, he can engage in all manner of philosophical speculation, he can worship whatever idols he wants to, and he can think of himself as completely autonomous. But the fact remains, he is not free of the law. Mankind is inescapably bound to it. In fact, his denial of the law makes him a spiritual equivalent of an adulterer, a spiritual whore, so to speak. Right? Because he rejects the one that he is bound to for another. Again, all of mankind is bound to the law 
with no escape except for those who are in Christ. Because Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The only way for us to be freed from the obligation to the law and the justice that we deserve for failing to obey the law is faith in Christ. It is not, I better get my life right. It's not, I better like get serious about this God thing. It is by faith in Christ. By putting our faith in Christ, we have union with him. We are united with his death, right? We have died to the law. We are freed from the requirements of the law and we're freed from the penalty for failing to keep the law. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our federal head, has perfectly kept the law for us. He succeeded where Adam failed, and he kept the covenant of works that was required. And then, by his own shed blood, he made atonement for our failures to keep the law. He did it all for us. That's why we sing the song, Jesus paid it all. We, because of our union with Christ, by faith, are now freed from the obligation to keep the law in order to have a relationship with God. This is the truth that destroys all forms of legalism. We should shout hallelujah to something like that. right? All people, hear me, all people must perfectly keep the law to be in right relationship with God. All people fail to keep the law and therefore under God's judgment of the law. Right? Christ keeps the law for us, and by faith, His righteousness and His obedience is credited to us, and because of that, we are freed from the law. Christian, we must always reject the tendency in us and, around, and those around us to try to put ourselves back in bondage to the law and legalism. We must always continually reject all form of legalism. You are saved. You are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. End of story. If there's anything else that you, if there's one thing that you remember from this sermon, remember that. And you are not required to now go out and think to yourself, man, I better start getting serious about, about keeping the law. I better memorize those 10 commandments and I better do them every single day and better not fail. Otherwise, God might throw me out of the kingdom, right? Otherwise, God might not love me anymore. Otherwise, God might not accept me. Hear me. You are already loved. You are already accepted in Christ. You were right with God because of Christ. You were righteous according to the standards of the law, not because of what you did, but because you're in Christ. It's all about Him. That's why he's the subject of all of our songs. He is our hope. Hold on to him. Now, right, does that mean then that the law doesn't matter anymore? No. Because notice Paul says that we died so that we may belong to another. By faith, we belong to Christ. We are his. He is our Redeemer. 
He is the one who purchased us. He is our husband. He is our master. We are irrevocably obligated to him. He is our treasure. He is our great reward. He is our king. If it is true that we have been radically transformed, how would we then live a life willfully contrary to God's righteous requirements? How would we willfully impugn the righteousness of Christ, the Christ that we love so much? How would we spit on the holiness of Christ who died to save us? How would we willfully, hard-heartedly spurn the law that reveals the very righteous character of the God that we worship? As we've talked about numerous times in the past several weeks, when we come to faith in Christ, we are radically transformed in nature. We are not what we once were. And the fruit of our life will begin to bear that out. Not that we will be perfect, but we will be growing in bearing fruit. In fact, Paul says, Likewise, brothers, you have died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him you have been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We belong to God so that we may bear fruit for God. This actually is an echo of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. What does Paul say? We are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As those who belong to Christ, what kind of fruit would God have us bear? What kind of works would He have us do that He's prepared for us? Would God have us live continually in, his, in rebellion to His moral law, spurning His righteousness and calling it grace? No. In fact, notice Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In our unregenerate nature, we rebelled against God's law willfully. And the fruit of that rebellion was what? Death. We, as we talked about last week, rebellion in the law is sin, and sin always produces death in some form. And when we were unregenerate, we were held captive to sin, and we were powerless to do anything about it. We were, we were, we were powerless to do anything but violate the law. And the law of God was powerless to change that in us. All the law of God on its own could do was prove that we had fallen short. And the law aroused passions in us to violate the law even more. But those who've come to faith in Christ, would they likewise live that way? Would they live willfully in a way that brings more and more death? Or would they spurn the law of God? No. Paul writes, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now that we are in Christ and personally released from the demands of the law to be morally perfect, because Christ satisfied those demands, now that we, we are not bound to the law the way that the rest of the world is, we now can serve God truly and bear the fruit that God would have us bear in the new way of the Spirit. You see, we can live in victory over sin because Christ has satisfied the demands of the law and made the atonement for us in our sins. And because of that, we are righteous in the sight of God because Christ has perfectly, his, 
because we are perfectly righteous in the sight of God because of Christ. And, and that never changes because we live by faith. But now that we've seen, that, now that we've been set free, now that we're free from the condemnation of the law, we are free now to obey it. Because we now made new. And the Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us and transform us more and more to the image of Christ. You see, it's not about us trying harder to obey rules. It's about us resting in Christ and His righteousness and following where the Holy Spirit leads us. And yes, we actively begin to obey God's commands. We do, right? But we don't do it from a fear of condemnation. We do it, I mean, excuse me, we don't do it to maintain some saved status. Otherwise, we lose our salvation. No, we become obedient because Christ is our treasure. He's our heart's desire. And our growing desire is to honor Him as our husband and, and king and redeemer. Our new nature desires to glorify God and magnify Christ. And our hearts are grieved when we fall short and dishonor Him. When we fall short in our sin, it's not, oh my God, God hates me. It's, how can I do that? to the God who loves me so much, right? And so we begin to obey actively, right? By our new nature, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because the demands and the threats of the written law are gone. We love and cherish this God who has done it all to set us free. That's, why the law is still important. Now, what do we do with this? I mean, this is some heavy stuff as we get through the middle of, of Romans now, right? Well, the first thing that we have to do is, if you're not in Christ, I will say it again and again and again, repent and believe the gospel, right? God has already paid for your sins. Repent and believe and be saved, right? The God that you were running from, the God that you've been rebelling against, Send His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, taking on a human nature and suffered in your place so that you can then be free. And all that you need is in Him. Believe and be saved. If you are in Christ, my encouragement to you is abide in Him. Draw closer to Him. Saturate your heart and your mind in His Word so that you will know the truth so you won't be prey to legalistic philosophies because they abound and they're really easy to, I mean, it's really easy to get caught up in them because guess what? There's something in us that wants to be obedient to God, right? And somehow, someway, it's just easy to begin to make a list of things. I don't do this and I do that and I don't do this and I do that. And next thing you know, we're holding up a standard to judge everyone else around us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Abide in Him, and then obedience becomes a byproduct of who you are. We abide in Him, not by making lists of rules. We abide in Him by abiding in His Word, by abiding in His prayer, by worshiping and fellowshipping and being close to one another as a body of believers, and then serving Him on the mission He's called us to, to share this hope with other people. Because this is true freedom, brothers and sisters. This is the truest freedom that, that can ever be had. 
There is nothing that anybody can hold against you. There is no enslavement physically that can hold you down if you're truly free in Christ. Let us walk in that. Let us rest in the truth that we have been set free from the requirements of the law. And we now have been set free to willfully be obedient to God. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.